Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. I'm Monica, and I'm your host. Tonight is July 25th, 2011, and tonight we have a really special guest. We have Dr. Wendy McCord, therapist and author, uh, with us tonight, and I am so happy that she'll be calling in shortly. Uh, Safe Recovery was created and designed to give us a platform to discuss and debate the problems in 12-step meetings and its culture. It is evolved to a place where we feel safe to talk about lots of other things, lots of other ways to get sober. Um, hi out there to Kenneth Anderson. Hi, Sue. There's Wendy is calling in. So I'm just going to bring her right on. Um, here we go. Let's see. Here we go. Hi. Hi, Wendy. You're live. Hi. Hi, Monica. How are you? How are you? Good. Can you hear me okay? I can. Can you hear me okay? I can, yeah. Good. Good, good. So uh, we talked today, and um, I want to just tell the listeners a little bit about Wendy. Um, Wendy has Wendy McCord. PhD. Um, she has her own website, which is wendymccord.com. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. And Wendy is a, a therapist and an author of the book is Earth Babies, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So the reason that I asked you to come on was because of the work that I did with you some, I think, back in 1993, I came across, uh, I met Wendy through, I was going to Unity Church at the time, and I was looking for a counselor to help with my marriage, and the minister there knew that Wendy was a therapist, and she was sort of spiritually, kind of a spiritual person, too. And um, I met Wendy, and I had just had a child. I think Michael was maybe 18 months old. Right. Right? Yeah, I think so. Uh-huh. Right. So uh, at that time, I was about uh, 15 or 16 years sober. And when I had Michael, I started to have a lot of really bad flashbacks that didn't make in, any sense to me, really. And so I want to, we'll talk about that, but I'd like maybe for you to tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, your background and what you've done, the work you've done, and what you specialize in now. Oh, I'd love to. Um, and thank you, Monica, for having me on. I really appreciate it. We have a oh, long, yeah. long history, huh? <laughs> yeah, really long and really good history. Yeah. Um, well, what I do is um, I just work with people but try to get down to a very deep level, uh, maybe the origins, to find the origins of where their pain came from. And as I have been a therapist for a long time, 30 years, what I found, or what I have found, is that for many, many people, the origins of their pain go way back. It's 
to even prenatal. Mm-hmm. So, and even sort of the circumstances under which they were conceived, believe it or not, uh, sometimes plays a part in it. So, um, I was in primal therapy and did a lot of primal therapy, and that's the work you and I did, mm-hmm. um, a lot of really deep feeling work. And um, it, it's not as common today. You don't hear about it as much, but it's still around. And for me, it is um, the best way for people to really get relief from early childhood trauma, whether mm-hmm. it's physical, sexual, emotional, spiritual. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, whatever people present, whatever their history is, um, Ask me some questions. Maybe that can, <laughs> maybe then I can say it a little clearer. So one of the things that happened is I came in there. I remember to your normal office, which had like a couch and a chair and a and a desk <laughs> and a light. Yeah. And I came yeah. with my. And then you went now, to my abnormal one. <laughs> right, right. And I came in there with my um, ex-husband, as who was the father of you know my son at the time, and we started to yeah. talk about some of my symptoms of having these flashbacks. Right. And um, kind of I was holding or bathing Michael, and I was having terrible flashbacks of sort of violent kind of really rough treatment by somebody right. as a baby. And, I, you know, here I was with a child who was a couple of – when they started, he was really young. I mean, he was small enough to put in a sink to bathe him, you know, right. and was a really sweet, um, really sweet baby, like they all are. But, you know, he was my first one, so I, and I've always wanted children – um, and when one of the things Wendy asked me to do was to actually lay down on the floor, and she was just going to put a little pressure on my feet, right? right? And she actually, I was like, wow, you know, I was much more interested in that than talking. You know, we could all talk till right. we're, you know, the cows come home. But she put her hand on my feet, and I started to wail. I mean, I cried so quickly, right? Right. And we yeah. talked about the sounds of the cries, that I made, mm-hmm. right, and then um, it was really intense, and I knew that I had really come to a place with AA and any of the other um, kind of shallow spiritual work that I had found that I'd come to sort of a standstill years before that, probably when I was 10 years sober, and then Wendy looked at me, and she said, you know, you really need to do your own work, and I can refer you and your husband to you know, my ex-husband, to somebody who can work on that. And so then Wendy said, would you like to work in here? Would you like to see this other room that I have? So would you describe (laughs) that other room for them? (laughs) Well, um, remember now, this was the early 90s, and I had just finished uh, training in primal therapy. So the other room was a padded room um, with a light on a rheostat and completely padded walls and floor and um, very airtight, and not airtight, but sound, air, you know, soundproof, and just a wonderful place for people to feel safe and to let go. And there's a difference between having feelings, like being sad or being confused, and feeling feelings, which is really a whole different level of going into the feeling and, and, and feeling it in its full uh, force. And most of the time, that takes you back to a memory or something. Um, and that's pretty much what we did in the in the padded room. Uh, right. And then the thing you, that... You can remember... Pardon yes, me? Yes, And the thing that... That's the, I loved that room. I mean, I don't know if yeah. I can handle it now because now I'm claustrophobic. But <laughs> <laughs> back then, I really liked it and I wasn't claustrophobic. But what... Um, I remember you also telling me as I was like doing a lot of crying was that I um, had been surviving. Like I was sort of, you know, proud of that I was a survivor. And you said, well, that's okay, but in life we should really thrive, not just survive. And that was really foreign to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, that I think, kind of... Mm-hmm. Well, I think people are programmed very, very early to either know love or fear. And if you've grown up in a home or a womb or a family where there's the primary feeling was fear, you are in survival mode. 
And if you grow up in a home where the primary feeling is love, and it's not all the time, but if the primary feeling is love, you grow up thriving. Mm -hmm. It's really not that complicated. But people who are surviving don't know that they're just surviving. Mm -hmm. They're actually doing really well just to survive. So um, the concept of thriving is... that didn't work for me. Yeah, they're right. That didn't work Mm -hmm. for me anymore. So there I was with you. Right. And really... I realized that I was very ready um, to find out why was I so afraid to leave my son um, with some of my family, um, yeah. you know, kind of yeah. with anybody, and was having a really reaction to uh, my family um, right. with this particular baby. And um, so we began to do, you know, I... I, I describe things and, uh, you know, of what some of my, I, w- I was called hang-ups, like actually in in AA, you know, they have this fourth and fifth step, and there were things that I told, uh, finally I did have, a, I thought, a good sponsor, a Hawaiian woman, um, and told her stuff that didn't happen to her, she didn't relate to it, and I, so I kind of felt really weird, and yeah. it was with Wendy that when and so it was interesting with you, Wendy, that when I would tell you certain things or certain hang-ups that you, you couldn't touch me here, you couldn't there, that that those are really you kind of knew that those are symptoms of being abused. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah, hang-ups are really symptoms in some form. That's true, and they all lead back if you follow the fear. It will lead back to what happened. Mhm. Mhm. If you're not afraid, I mean, you really need to be with a therapist who's done their own work and isn't afraid of these things, because sometimes they're quite um, emotive, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, they're really very strong feelings, and you have to allow somebody to be able to go through that all the way through that, so right. they can get clear about what really happened. Yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah, it was really terrifying. But it did feel really safe there with you. Like, I think the one thing that I did see some other therapists before we we were like looking before I found you, and they were also heady. You know, they were just so also. um, You were very professional, but there was something um, emotional uh, that was uh, really accessible. You were emotionally accessible. Yeah. And I thought that it was so special, and there was sort of a sort of a spiritual um, yeah. essence about you, which I was really uh, it was a very very important to me then, you know, still is now. But and so then what she also we talked about doing rage work because what was going on is I think we, one of the fights that he and I had had um, was on the freeway where I was driving like a you know. A crazy woman. I had been going like back and forth in the lanes. Thank God there were not a lot of cars. Oh. And uh, I think Michael was in the back seat in the baby seat. And I was like, okay, this is. I don't even know where this rage is coming from. And I had always been angry, but it had sort of. It, and it was not anyway. So we we took the bat. She had this great plastic bat. And, um, <laughs> yeah. Right. And right. the fake little the faces, like the pillows of like a little face right. on it. And um what happened was started hitting it and as I began to let it, you know, like really wail, underneath was I started to cry. Like as soon as the rage, whether it's ten or fifteen or twenty slaps with the bat on the you know, on the pillow, um, I realized what was um going on and um so I had uh, like huge feelings I had never felt in my life. Right. It's amazing that they're under there, isn't it? And people walk around in their rage and their anger and never know how hurt they are. So, but right. you have to you have to have a way of getting to it, unless life gets you to it. But um, it's it's really uh, I would just want to say something about hitting with the bat. I yeah. know it sounds kind of impotent and silly, but the truth of it is that plastic bat saved lives. It saved children. It saved abuse. You know, you can hit a pillow and let your feelings out and you don't hurt anyone. You don't hurt anyone's feelings. You do it in the privacy of your own 
place or, you know, whoever you're with. And mm-hmm. you can break through. And it doesn't, it honestly doesn't hurt anyone. And you get the the joy of being able to resolve it yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a pretty powerful thing. Um, I wish, I wish, I have a plastic bag today. <laughs> and I yeah, use so. it. So, <laughs> you, you know, I get to the Walgreens, those like whistle ball bats, and they're wonderful. And, I'm, you know, people have just destroyed them. I mean, they've just wailed on them till they're gone. Mm-hmm. And I think they save lives. I think they save blood pressure and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, that was uh, for for people who are angry, and I was very angry. That's why I um, I'm pretty comfortable with with angry people, especially angry women, because I think they really need a chance to express it and not be judged and not be uh, held back in any way. Right. So I'm a now, big advocate of those big red plastic bags. Yeah, the, I like the one with the flat side, the T-ball ones. So it, so when it hits it, oh, the bed or whatever, it's like yeah. it's flat and it goes, Whoop, you know. Yeah, I turned yeah, on my, I, Right, I showed it to my my boys to use when they were older, and actually my husband and other people that have come into my life who were so angry, yeah. and uh, you know, um, yeah. it really. It, there was there were a couple of times with my kids at different ages, and I was like, you know, I'll be right back, and they would hear me go, Whoosh, and I was like, what are you right. doing? I was like, I'm upset, and I just let me you know, hit this, yeah. but, um, you know, there was a huge, it, it was a long process, I, I don't remember, it, you know, it was a, a couple of years that I saw you, where it was Probably really, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, every week almost, or is what my insurance, thank God, that I had, that um, that yeah. paid, and even when it ran out, I came, that there was this giant shift in me that went from, like, okay, here's something that used to happen before the therapy I did with you, if I went to a, an event where there were a lot of people, I sometimes would feel invisible. Mm-hmm. And after the therapy that I did with you, I never, ever felt that way again. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot for someone to get me really angry. Like, I... Mm-hmm. It, it is um, the deep, deep level. And so one of the things I think that happened is, so I came to see you, and then we went to see Dwayne, who did... Um, getting the love you want, the Harville Hendricks work, where you mm-hmm. learn how to, you know, this more for couples. And in the work that I did there, I remember being molested by my great aunt. Yeah. And that was then I came back to you with that, and I had, I didn't remember that. I remembered like another event that happened by a stranger, but, and that I told you, but there were other things that were not, they just didn't explain the level of my rage um, that I had. And yeah. so then I came in with her, but I couldn't get mad at her, is what I actually remember, I think, about her. But um, I guess it doesn't matter. I, I want to talk about some books. So The Courage to Heal was, Absolutely. right, at the very yeah. popular time. Yeah. Right. I think you asked me to get that, and I read that. And in that book, I read some things that I felt that had been done to me even though they I had not a clear memory of them. Mm-hmm. Which linked then to some of my, uh, what I felt, hang-ups, you know, where, you know, if you would, like, touch me there, I'd, like, want to punch you in the face. But even though... <laughs> 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 but it would be a normal... There's feeling there. Huh? <laughs> I mean, I'll be so, I'm going to, like, use an example, but this is not the example. It'd be like... You know, in intimacy, it'd be normal if a man wants to touch a breast or boob, but if you did, like, I'd want to hit you in the face. Like, it wasn't there, but, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, that, uh, and so, and then I had nightmares as a child, remember? And we, yeah. we talked about that if you had demonic nightmares. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, you want to talk about that if someone comes to you and they say that you have these dreams about demons and the devil and... Gosh, Monica, I don't remember what we said you don't about remember. that. Well, anyway, no. very often it's about <laughs> sexual abuse, and ah, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So they were, in fact, uh, happening at the same time that there were multiple incidences that had happened to me, um, and I really had always just brushed them off as like, oh, you know, this happened, but no one ever said, oh my God, mm-hmm. that's terrible. You know, would yeah. you like to, you know, say more? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to, this is a total, like a different, 
a friend of mine that I've met on the blog, we were uh, at Fred Siegel's eating lunch, and we were in the bathroom talking about actually the sexual stuff, you know, the sexual harassment going on in AA, and she didn't, she came out, we were, you know, we, I talked, decided to talk freely, I knew there was someone else in another bathroom, and I said, I just don't care, I'm just going to keep talking to Amy, and we went out on the parking lot, and this young girl came out, and she said, you know, that happened to me, and she started, oh. she said, what, what can I do, and she talked about a, a relative, and an uncle, and it was really powerful. Um, she said yeah. she'd never told anybody, and she heard us talking. And uh, it's kind of intense. But um, so, um, you know, when you say that you were also, you know, you were angry. Do you want to talk about why you were angry? Well, yeah, <laughs> I um, <laughs> I grew up no. wanting to die. What? What's that? No. <laughs> I said I grew up wanting to die. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, Ooh, what is that? I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. And I just hated my mother. And so what do you do when you're a kid who hates your mother? You know, you can't feel very good about yourself. So I felt really bad about myself, but I really did hate my mother. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had to somehow figure all this out and what on earth was wrong with me because that's what it felt like. And so I did lots of therapy and went to primal therapy, and um, I was very suicidal um, much of my life, well, my my younger life, and I uh, didn't know why. I didn't. I just wanted to die, and because I guess if you don't love your mother, who are you? You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I had to sort it all out, and I, for me to sort it all out, I had to go back. To, uh, my prenatal life because my mother never wanted me and so if you're not wanted you start off in a deficit you, you start off in trouble and I it didn't feel like that because I came from a really kind of nice family and a nice house and um, relatively wealthy parents and I had lots of opportunities but the truth was underneath that which was very hard for me to get to my mother hated having kids and consequently hated me. And my dad was in such denial and probably alcoholic that um, we, I couldn't I couldn't see it. I couldn't understand it. So it took a long time mm-hmm. for me to figure it out. I used to say it took the second 20 years of my life to figure out what happened to the first 20 years of my life, and mm-hmm. it took the third 20 years of my life to make sense out of it all. So it's for myself. Yeah. Pardon me? Yeah. How old were you when you decided to become a therapist? Like when did you know that you wanted um, to go do that? I was, uh, I think I was 32. Mm-hmm. I had come to California to do primal therapy. Um, and then I stayed there and uh, wanted to become a primal therapist and did that for a while. But then I realized I wanted to work with kids. And then I went back to school and got a Ph.D. in clinical and child psychology. So, And the longer I worked with people and the longer I realized what had happened to me, I, I began to understand that the healing, you had to go back so far. Mm-hmm. And so few people like you would stick it out and go through all that trauma um, that what I started to do was write about prevention because it's so much easier to prevent it than to... Um, cure it. And mm. everybody in addictions, um, when when you get sober, you then can begin the process. And I know that's kind of discouraging because sobriety isn't the goal. The goal is happiness and living a healthy, loving, uh, kind life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are sober and mean. So, yeah. you know, I think it's a long process. So I started writing, and that's what the book is about, about prevention. Mm-hmm. Because we don't we don't think when, when we bring children into this world. Um, um, and a lot of children yeah. are brought into the world with less thought than what they're going to have for dinner. So mm-hmm. this is a really bad thing, and this is where people get set up to really be miserable. Does that uh, make sense? I wanna, yeah, I want to get to the book, but I want to just talk some more about the process and how uh unbelievably life changing it was the work 
that we did do. One of the other books that I mean, you saw me go through, Courage to Heal, I read it like I just ate it up, I tore it up, so to speak, and would come in and, you know, sob and, and do the work. And I remember, you know, deciding to not have communication with my mother and yeah. we worked on that and we talked about, you know, I wrote her a letter, I wrote my father a letter, I wrote my brother a letter. I was in contact with my sister um, who we talked uh, a lot at that point. I called my cousins, some of my other family, to just talk to them about my, my childhood and what they remembered. And I remember one of my cousins was just really, really loving and supportive, and so was my sister. Um, but uh, where's I going with this? Um, just how much it changed me and the the depth. Oh, oh, the um, When Children Kill by Paul Mona. So... Then you told me oh well, my gosh, there's, yes, there's I forgot book, that. right that mm-hmm. was now falling apart on the shelf, but when children kill, which is uh written by a lawyer who represents right. if he still does, but he back then it seems like it was yesterday re- represented teenagers, most of them who killed right. their parents who mm-hmm. when I they, think he they represented all, the the Minios boys oh did he did he did he finally so. re- later on yeah. um and the stories were there were sexual abuse, it was emotional, it was physical. Uh-huh. There were a couple that were even just verbal and um, physical. They were all horrible. They were, as I read, and I mean, it was the kind of book that I read, I read it and my ex-husband read it, like both of us read it in like two days. It was just, uh-huh. couldn't put it down. And it, of course, the point being that you said it will really, you'll access some more rage. Like if you want to get to it, you know, read this and um and there were stories that were just unbelievable i just uh it was just so horrible and it sort of gave me permission to look at and say why was i this way why was i so angry um why was i having you know so many problems internally with my communication and with um, being, being out of control with some of that, with my anger, it felt out of control. And I was willing to do whatever I had to do to go as deep as I had to to find the answer to that, which is what we did. Right. You right. had such courage, Monica, really. Mm. I mean, Thank you. Most, a lot of times people will get to that place where they, they look at the horror and they will use you know, they'll just, or they'll change addictions and become religious or, you know, they'll just, they'll get right to that point where they're going to get to their primal origin of rage and um, and just not be able to see it, it at least at that time. Mm-hmm, so it takes mm-hmm. great, great courage. And you have yeah, that. Pretty, you really it was did. pretty scary. It was pretty scary because yeah. when I first was talking about what it was, I... Uh, would say, oh, that's not really that. That's, you know, this is, like, it was really hard to call it what it was. Right. And um, I I remember then attracting, when I went to meetings, um, a lot of women who this had happened to, and I would say, you know, there's a lot of crazy, crazy stuff said in meetings, like, what is your part in it? And I would say, well, you know, when Bill and Bob wrote this, they were talking to grown adults, and they weren't talking about children who were molested or children who were beaten up. or not. They were not talking to children. And there's this crazy thought process that had taken over in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I think NA addressed it better. I think they had a workbook, and they, uh, but but AA never did. It's like like really old school, written 1936, for this crap. And people would say, "Well, what is your part in it?" And I would stand up, and I would literally, I was just working with you, and I would go to random meetings and talk about what I was going through. And um, attract some really wonderful women that were in my life for a couple of years, who I then um, passed on to them what you were teaching me. And on the other side of that was I felt so different. You know, right. when I after those couple of years, uh, I um, I just felt really, really, really different. And um, I cried a lot around my son. I'm sure if this was today, they would have wanted to put me on antidepressants. <laughs> right? And I thank God there were nothing. I didn't need them. I felt the feelings, and I went deep. And yeah, well, you were feeling it. It, it. 
the people who can't feel it or don't know what it is to feel are the folks who want to shut it down. And I don't blame them. I mean, if you don't have access to those feelings, you just feel crazy. So Right. Mm-hmm. You know. And if you're not going to have somebody who's... I mean, that was kind of a unique setup you had there. You know, you have the office with yeah. the chair and the desk, and then you have this sort of padded yeah. room next door. Did you know anybody? I know I've, I've asked you this, but did you know anybody else in, in Los Angeles or anywhere else in the country that had a setup like that at the time in the 90s? Well, I think at the time, um, a lot of the therapists who had come out of the primal movement had that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I was the only one, but I don't think there were a lot of them. Um, it was, <laughs> and you know, I used to go into office buildings and have them fit fit me a padded room, and nobody ever said anything. Today they'd probably arrest me, but back in the day, you know, it was it was nobody seemed to think that was pretty unusual. But God, I'm so glad. Now I know that you. I, I remember know. when you when you left and you went to Arizona. And mm-hmm. this is when you went and went to write. Um, so I want everybody just who's out there listening, we have some people in the chat room um, tonight. Um, our guest is Wendy McCord. And Wendy McCord is um, you're a licensed uh, family therapist but also a Ph.D. And mm-hmm. she was my therapist. She still is. I found her again after many years on the, cause thank God for the Internet. I was like, I wonder if... Like Wendy decided to like do therapy again, <laughs> and uh, um, so so let's talk about um, your book because you went, you you stopped, you took a break. It was very stressful doing the work you did, wasn't it? I remember. Uh, yeah, it 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 was because it, well, in Los Angeles, I got really really busy, and mm-hmm. I began to get a little sick. So, um, I I was working too hard. And mm-hmm. I needed to find balance in my life, so I did. I moved to Phoenix, and kind of took a break. And I wrote the book, and then of course I started again doing therapy because I really love it. I I don't know if I'll ever not be able to do it because it's mm-hmm. so amazing to see what people can do. And so um, I wrote the book, and the book was really about the prevention of this kind of pain, and it's called Earth Baby. And it's uh, basically a storybook for adults to help them have children in a healthier way so that the kids will end up being healthy adults and uh, how, how sane and that? loving. Yeah, how does how somebody, somebody do, do that? that? Yeah. Number one, you, have, you, have, you only have wanted children. You, you, you need, people need to be more conscious and aware to, uh, to have the children that they want. And that's not to say that if you get pregnant, you get nine months to figure it out. But mm-hmm. a wanted child has all sorts of advantages in this world and an unwanted one that people decide to keep or decide to um, have anyway because mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a problem and nobody really talks about it. It's, it's very serious. I mean, how you start out in this world, the, the beginning of your origin, carry through the rest of your life. That's so most, true. Most of, most adults, actually there's a statistic that says um, 60% of adults do not believe that anything that happened in childhood has anything to do with adult problems. And wow. that's pretty scary. Yeah. That's really scary, but that's 60%. So we have a huge problem. And what I'm saying is it's not just childhood, it's before. It's in utero and it's. It's even why you were conceived. And and I know this because I know I was conceived as a mistake. And that has been something that I have had to um, get underneath and figure out. Uh, and the only thing that really helped me turn that around was a spiritual belief because there was no evidence in my life. Mm-hmm. So um, anyhow, being wanted is the number one thing. I mean, I think probably, and forgive me for saying this because I'm not an AA, but my guess is a really wanted child would not end up in AA. They, uh, and, and I'll tell you why. There's a theory about this. If you're wanted and you come from love, then if you think about it, good is good and bad is bad. So when you get older and you know you're loved and you have choices to make, you make better choices. If you're offered something that is bad, you say, no, that that doesn't fit with my 
um, my internal beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so they make love, love children make healthier choices. But if you grow up in a negative or abusive, or you know, worse, very abusive environment, what you know is what you know is bad, and bad then becomes the new good. Mm-hmm. So you make poor choices. In other words, why would anybody drink and get drunk? Is that good? It's not good. You know, it's not a good thing to do. But right. Or or why would you eat lousy food? Or why would you go out with an abusive man? Or why would you marry a horrible woman? Mm-hmm. If you if you knew love, you would look at that and say, oh, I'm not going to do that. That doesn't feel good. But if you don't know love, believe it or not, those things feel okay. And you're even, people are even attracted to those things. So the truth of it is good is good and bad is bad. But when you come from a childhood of not being wanted or loved, good is bad and bad is good. And how many times have people made bad choices thinking, like the girl who wants to go out with the bad boy. Well, Mm -hmm. what the hell is she thinking? (laughs) You know, what are you going to get from a bad boy? Uh, I think there's a lot of unwanted people out out there. You know, I mean, I I, I just... There are. So I've been getting in... Right, that there's some people that I've met that got sober that they have that unusual story, and, and like you think, okay, well, let's wait till they're 10 years sober and see how the story changes, or let's wait till like 15 years sober and they're in therapy, or let's wait till they're 22 and they're like flipping out and like driving their trucks into trees, which I know to be the case that it, it's sort of a slow process of what I've seen and experienced, and but I do know that there are some, but there are some that are loved, but yes, have stress, like you think of my children that were really wanted um, and really loved, yet the first child had a great deal of stress um, around two parents that were fighting a lot, like way more than my second child experienced. And then myself, where I was clearly unwanted, my mother told me how unwanted I was, and she tried to abort me, and my father really wanted me, and how she took a mustard bath to try to, that's what they would do in the old days. And I was like, I remember telling you that, and you were like, your mother told you that? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, and people don't understand what they're saying to their children. I once had a woman say to me, well, my mother told me that my father said we could have a baby or a Cadillac. And she said, I'm sure she made the wrong choice. (laughs) (laughs) She should have had the Cadillac. Because the woman was, you know, she grew up, yeah, she grew up to be really miserable knowing that, you know, her mother really did want the Cadillac. Wow. Now, and people wow. do crazy, crazy things, you know. But that's that's okay. That's life. That's being human. But for each one of us listening now or each one of us trying to live better and healthier lives, we have to make good choices, whether we think we deserve them or not. Mm-hmm. And that's when change can happen. But Now, you, you know, have two offices, right? You have two places that I you do. work out of? Yeah. I so do. You're in yeah, I work in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. In Phoenix and actually Prescott. I live in Prescott, but I travel down to Phoenix twice a month. I want to just tell the listeners this is going to be archived. We're talking to Wendy McCord. Um, it's what is the title besides? I know you have a different title besides your PhD. What does that stand for again? It's a licensed marriage and family. Right, licensed. Right, LS. Right, and. That you do phone uh, sessions, right? Because I, we, I do. Yes, and I, you mm-hmm. know, I remember hearing someone did that, but and I wouldn't be willing to do it. I think with somebody who I hadn't worked with before, but I yeah. find them, you know, because we have such a long, uh, you know, years of you helping me when I went through my divorce. I think I saw you a couple of times. You were visiting here, and um, but it was terrible when. I was really going through my divorce, and I couldn't find you. I mean, I know you were there, and I don't think that you mm-hmm. were doing therapy then. You know, I think it was the, you were written, written yeah. your book or you were writing it, and uh, there wasn't right. the Internet yet. And um, I went to a few people to because I, I was crying all the time, and it mm-hmm. was just such a terribly hard time, and it was awful. Like I compared everybody to you, and I would be like, oh, my God, this is hideous, or they were so clinical, or they were so cold, or 
whatever. And there was just no, uh, you know, comparing. I think that the work that I, you know, sh- what I did with you was so unbelievably intimate and painful that the bond and you were just so real. You were just so real, Wendy, um, that if there is anybody out there that doesn't have um, a therapist that has dealt with some serious issues that, uh, you know, um, Wendy is just a really, really fantastic therapist. I was even telling Kevin, I was like, you know, that sometimes she says things that are so not clinical, they're just so honest. <laughs> like you'll say things that... Um, uh, are just so refreshing, um, and it's, you don't say them in the clinical therapist term or you know, words. And uh, you'll make me laugh, um, and, and and I get it, I get it. And then there's a shift. Oh, thanks so much. You're very, very kind. Um, oh, you're welcome. You're I welcome. don't know what to say. I'm, I'm really glad I do what I do, and I do what I do because it saved my life. It's not mm-hmm. that I feel um, above anybody or ahead of anybody. I think we're just all struggling to be happy. And if I can help in that way, then that's that makes my life worthwhile. Just like what you're doing with AA is, is, is what you're doing to make your life worthwhile with what you've gone through. You know, I mean, you're, I think you're going to change the way AA uh, behaves, or at least mm-hmm. lets their people behave, and yeah, I hope that so. is mm-hmm. a, a fantastic and important thing to do. Abuse must be stopped. Mm-hmm. It just must be stopped. And although I don't go to AA, um, I, you and I have talked quite a bit about it, and to me it feels a lot like what's uh, been going on in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when there's a hierarchy, when there's people within power, and People, they may even be adults, but they're being preyed upon. Uh, mm-hmm. That's abuse. That's absolutely abuse, and it has to. There has to be some kind of rule or, or I mean, law. I mean, it's against the law to do that. So, I totally support what you're doing, Monica, and I think it is an outgrowth of your own healing that you're there and fighting for people who need to know that's wrong. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. It's really, you know, it's very tough work, and but you know, someone someone has to do it, and I I think it's me for right now. Yeah. And uh, but it is it's illegal. Like you know, it, sexual harassment is against the law, and yeah. there you know it, it's time that there's some kind of uh, rules and some kind of uh, implemented at a, at a from the top down from the bottom at every level. Uh, and as a result, this is why this radio show began with, you know, whole dealing with, you know, stop 13 step in AA. And then I I left, you know, after 36 years. I went to my meeting and I said, I'm done. I'm going to move on. I'm going to go to smart recovery meetings. And, and then I really wanted to have those other, you know, modalities. I had Ken Anderson, which is does harm reduction for people who are not ready to completely stop. And they talk about which would be really helpful with young people, you know. Uh, and I just started to have all these different guests on, and then I started thinking about you. Like, what were the all these things that, you know, changed me and made me who I am today? Well, that would have to be Wendy. Then there would have to be Dwayne and the Horrible Hendrix work for getting the love you want. And then there's more after that, but the core shift, the truth is when I would hear women in, in meetings say, well, you know, I wouldn't be here today, if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thought, no, no, that's not true. If I didn't find Wendy when I had Michael, I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. Like that would have taken me out. I don't know how, and I'm really strong, but like it was time to do other work. Right. In a well, you, loving, I mean, it's hard to listen to that feeling. People know it. They know they're falling apart. They know they're miserable. They know they can't. They're confused and they don't know why their life isn't working. But most people do not choose to look at it. They choose to use or to throw everything into recovery. And honestly, recovery is just the beginning. I, In my own practice, I won't see anybody who hasn't had a year of sobriety 
because mm-hmm. they're just beginning to feel. They're just beginning. They're just coming out of, um, I don't know what the word is, but sort of a, a, a haze mm-hmm. where they they don't really know who they are. They don't really know what they feel. And so it's people need a year just to, I hate to say this, but just to start. And And once they start and once they get kind of a spiritual connection, I think that sort of helps them along. And it can be any kind of spiritual connection. It doesn't have to be AA, but usually it has to be something. Because mm-hmm. otherwise you'd, you'd run screaming back to old behavior, right? Well, it, it's um, pretty dark stuff. I mean, I think that there are people, like yeah. the interesting part of the blogs that I'm on now is that I've come into a world where there were many people that AA didn't work for because they didn't like the whole God thing or the religious thing. Mm. It's very Christian-based and... I was coming from a sort of a very hippie, spiritual place, you know, 70s kind of, you know, searching for many of us like that. But there were a lot of people who needed help who didn't believe that. And so I began became very open-minded and, like, saying, wow, like, so what's the difference? You know, it's about empowerment. Like, then, and then I, then I began to notice that the whole, like, sort of the basis of what A was based on in powerlessness that I no longer believed in and thought it was, like, ridiculous and, like, really old and, like, it was 1936 and, God, like, even therapists have changed how they treated people since 1936 and um, doctors and dentists and OBGYNs. And I, I began to really, my mind just opened and opened and was so in, interested in how others had done it. But mm-hmm. I do I do think that, um, I think it would be interesting um I do think that people who learn that are able to moderate and manage um, their drinking, that I'm really open to to that. That there's pe- that moderation um, has helped many people just to, and to get to even abstinence. That that the road straight to black and white, um, you know, it's, it's killed Amy Winehouse. It's killed many people where they, you know, it's like this gloom and doom is projected, and and maybe that's not. The way to it's not the only way, and I think what was sad, Wendy, is that even when I called you to, you know, because I was going through such a hard time with this, that you didn't know, I didn't know of these alternatives. Yeah, I'm not sure there were those alternatives. Were there, Monica, back then? Oh, well, not when I. I think there's a Ellis. You know, what was his? I can't remember his name now. Um, I think somebody might out there know, Albert Ellis. Yeah was the oh, yeah. first beginning of, um, and then Rational Recovery actually has been around 20 years. Um, SMART's been around 12 years. As, I was really surprised Women for Sobriety was around in the 70s, and she spun off and didn't like aspects of AA and calling themselves powerless. It was much more an empowered group, and um, don't even have to call yourself an alcoholic. You just needed to say that you needed help, that you had a life threatening problem that you wanted help with. And Secular for Sobriety, um, a guy also, it's been around also, I think, 20-something years. Uh, And it just gets no free press. I mean, so um, I'd like to talk about your book a little bit. We have like about 12 minutes left. And um, we could take maybe one call if somebody does want to call in to ask um, Wendy a question you can dial in at 818-475-9211. It's 818-475-9211. I'm Monica, and this is my show, Safe Recovery. And we have Wendy McCord, uh, who is a therapist and out of Phoenix in um, Prescott, and also author of Earth Babies. Um Now, we take the... Uh, you want to talk about the deeper? So before... Going back to the baby is uh, in the mom's belly, and before that, even. Yeah, I mean, why, why, why the baby is conceived? I mean, mm-hmm. it matters whether you're conceived in love or haste or hate or rape. Those things really matter, and they stay with you. Your they become the imprint of your origin and your self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And you can spend a lifetime trying to recover from some of these things, particularly if it's violent, or particularly if there is uh, no desire on the part of the mom to have the baby. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, this is 
it's a little bit difficult thing to talk about because you get into trouble with the church, you get into trouble with abortion people and all that, but I'm going to frankly say this. I would much rather have somebody have an abortion than have than bring a child into the world they did not want, could not stand, had no love for. Because I think there's later opportunities, and I know that runs into runs sideways with a lot of people, but I've you and I, we've yeah. we've dealt with lives of not being wanted, and mm-hmm. it's it's pretty serious. And I'm yeah. glad that I got to the place in my life that I am, and I'm really glad you have. But many many people don't, and these are the people who really suffer. So being wanted is the number one thing, and then after that, of course, is being loved. And in the book, I have a theory called the empty well. And that mm-hmm. says that every child has this well that, that needs to be filled. And it's filled from conception up until three. And it's filled with the love of the parents and trust and fun and anticipation and honesty and caring and sweetness. And all these things fill the well or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we're three, we're pretty much cooked. We have the personality, we have our moral standards, we have our conscience, and um, so what's in the well is pretty much stable at that point, whether it's full or empty. I don't think anybody has a really full well, but there are a lot of people who have really empty wells. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're we're pretty conditioned by the time we're three. That's That's where our self-esteem already is. And then we go forward in life, carrying that unconsciously, mm-hmm. believing what our parents thought of us as truth about who we are. Mm-hmm. And it's not true. That's not who we are. We are a child of God, and we are much more. And had we had different parents, we would have felt different about ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So anyhow, then if you're loved, you just get up and go through life and find somebody who loves you and have children that you care about. And if you're not loved, you struggle and you suffer and you try to figure out what's wrong and you, if you're really smart and really have a lot of um, ingenuity, then you can begin to unravel it. And I think that's a AA. Believe it or not, I I what I think about AA is that it's a scaffolding that it's built around the personality and it gives you good messages like the things you didn't get from your family, like do the next right thing. I mean, that's good is good, right? Mm-hmm. It, they give you messages to rebuild the damage that was done in childhood. I mean, if it all works right. And then, of course, if there's somebody in there doing the damage that you had in childhood, it's doubly horrible. But, um, well, you know, do the I, next it, right that, I mean, that uh-huh. one's a good one. But there's too many new new ones or, say, you know, sayings that are actually really detrimental. And it's, I think that the setup as the years have gone on to look up, like, that is a good, good you know, it's a good tool. Um, but to say people that, you know, your best thinking got you here and that, you know, there's this sort of buildup. Well, that's of, very punitive, isn't it? That's you right. Know, there's a lot not. of punitive yeah. stuff being said, and it's gotten worse yeah. and worse that, like ask your sponsor this and ask your sponsor that and like there's a lot of disempowerment and not to whereas when I got sober people were encouraged to go within and to meditate and to um, figure out what you should do and that's actually in the book like there's a great paragraph about that but there's this whole culture especially in Los Angeles um, where there's big culty meetings where you know people like who's your sponsor and what did your sponsor it's like this woman is like 25 years sober. She's 50 years old, and she has a husband and kids. And the woman is asking her this question has none of that. Mm-hmm. Like she's not a mother, and she's maybe not married. And there, there's this very strange dynamic. Did you call your spot? Like you know that you don't, you can't figure out yourself. Like it's just gotten to mean absolutely maddening. And then if I were to read with you, which I did in one of my shows, the stuff that's read. At, before every meeting, which is Chapter 5, 
you know, there's some really horrible things said. We're like men who have lost their legs. We never grow new ones. You know, we're people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with ourselves. You know, we are such unfortunates. You know, we may be at fault. We have been born that way. We are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. You know, I mean, it's just insane writing that... People mm-hmm. sit, and as I was leaving, and I knew I couldn't take it anymore, I would sit and listen to that, Wendy. I'd go, this is nuts. Well, it's interesting. It's kind of like a sponsor. is like a surrogate mother of some sort or father. And and then it's like they kind of frighten you. Is that what you're saying? It's sort of like you have to listen to this person. Well, if you don't pick a really sane mother or father, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> well, you know, you did say... Like, when I met you, we talked about mine, like, Mary, and I don't know, you probably don't remember saying this because you had so many, you know, clients, but you did say to me, you know, I really think that if you hadn't met Harry and Mary, that was my sponsor, Hawaiian woman, there was, like, a lot of Oh, yeah, family, I do, yes, I do remember right? that. Yeah. That you would yeah. be really screwed up. You know, you said yeah. to me, like, I, they were like parents. Like, I mean, I was the age of their children, mm-hmm. and they right. did love me like a child, like their child, and right. I needed that kind of relationship with them uh, that helped finish, you know, kind of give me, rounding me out. I mean, I got sober at 18, so, you know, there was a lot of parenting that was left undone with me as a teenager, for sure, you know. Um, You know, um, before we have to go, I just want to say that one of the really good things that came out of the whole AA thing was the inner child work. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very relieved when that came out because, up until then, anything that had to do with therapy was not considered particularly positive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was just stay the program, talk to your sponsor. And so when I would see somebody like you, you were almost a renegade. To You sort of went against the grain to, to get into therapy. And now this is back in the 90s. I don't know what it's like now. But there right. was a point where people would come in and say they felt guilty because they were told AA was enough. And if they just did the program rigorously and religiously, they would get everything they needed. Right. And some people knew that they needed more. But until um, Wakefield came out with some of the inner child work, it was pretty tough seeing anybody. Anybody in AA had a really hard time coming into therapy. And that was a really good thing that happened, I think. Yes, he was really huge. I mean, he was... Mm -hmm. uh, Really? It made a difference. What was, it, made a big what was his name again? His last name was Wakefield. I can't remember Charles, or I can't remember his whole name. But I mean, he wrote the book The Inner Child. So right, The Inner and, Child. There's really right. a lot of I have some really funny uh, stories that my friend who they did a bunch of guys did some inner child work with a couple that um, did a lot of the same work. They must have been primal therapy, uh, and they all had to get, like, teddy bears, or they had to get, like, a, oh, you know, yeah. like an animal. And my friend, Larry, that's a really funny story. But, um, you know, we, we have about two and a half minutes to finish up, and I want to thank uh, everybody who is in the chat room who came by and listened. And um, I really want to thank you, uh, Wendy, for, you know, all for coming and being on the show. And, you know... Oh, uh, my pleasure, Monica. It's wonderful to see what you're doing and to see what you're doing for people. And I just want to say one thing. It's not all women that are victims. Um, I have a client who's a man, and he was victimized uh, by a woman. And I think some women in AA are looking for husbands and looking for wealthy husbands Mm -hmm. or whatever kind of husbands. Mm -hmm. And so I think it goes both ways, and I think that's important to say. It's not just men picking on women. Yeah, yeah, we uh, talk about the cougar woman um, that's yeah, out there, and exactly. she definitely yeah. is there. Like you know, your mid forties, early fifties, and hitting on like a twenty-seven year old. You know. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Let's you want to give it just a, a, a your website again and the name of the, your book. Yes, and, I would. It's ahead. Wendy McCord, W E N D Y M C C O R D dot com, and in October over Halloween. I'm doing a women's retreat in Yosemite where Ooh. you get dressed as your shadow. And uh, so you get a chance to dress as your shadow and talk about it and own it and then transform it. So anybody interested in doing that kind of work, it's 
It's powerful, and Yosemite, of course, is a fabulous place to be. And we wow. stay at this really creepy hotel, which is perfect for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's called the Ramona, and it was built in like 1880. So it's kind oh of my a perfect God. setting. So. <laughs> oh, my so, goodness. Uh, yeah, well, thank and, you so much. Um, thank you, everybody. Next week we're going to have on Stephen Slate from the Clean Slate is going to be on. Uh, and I want to thank you again tonight. Thank you, Wendy McCord, thank for being here. Thank you, Monica. Live. For Thank being you. who you are. Oh, you're welcome. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye, everyone. Bye bye. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining me for Safe Recovery on Block Talk Radio. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.